So uh, pest and disease management is the right one. And how do you start it? Okay, click it. Uh, I think I'm going to go through a couple of uh, sort of, since it's Sabbath, I have a few uh, preach to the choir here on a little of this stuff because I know you guys are probably pretty much into this already. But I know CA Church website had on it. Uh, I don't, I won't, it doesn't matter really which one. They're on most of them. It says uh, Sabbath uh, is a sacrament of marriage. Sabbath and the sacrament of marriage are the two divine institutions that God gave to human beings in a sinless world. We always bring that up, don't we? Those two divine institutions, Sabbath and marriage. Uh, and Eden before man fell to sin, they uh, represent the highest expression of our love to God and of human beings as detailed in the Ten Commandments. Our adversary Satan and his whole confederacy of evil are making a concerted effort to obliterate both. What? The Sabbath and the institution of marriage. Institution of Sabbath and the institution of, the, uh, of marriage, right? That's what he, Satan's trying to obliterate. Obliterate means taking it out of our heads completely, you know? Uh, their, assault, uh, their assaults, Satan and his army assaults against marriage are succeeding, of course, and uh, widespread denigration. I knew it was an important word, that's why I, I just couldn't pronounce it. Uh, uh, of marriage and the family relationship. Okay, now, we all agree with that, right? Divine institutions. Fundamental belief number 23 kind of goes over the same ground. The Sabbath and marriage are two of God's original gifts. Family, human, to the human family, they were intended to provide the joys of rest and marriage, the joys of belonging, right? Regardless of time, place, culture, uh, the establishment of these two institutions. Remember, it's always two, culminating God's creation of this earth. Uh, they were the finale, his finale, the best of his exceedingly good and gifts he gave humanity at creation. Okay, we got that again. Now, I suggest to you that if you read that same chapter, there is actually a third institution that God gave mankind before sin. There's the marriage, there's the Sabbath rest, and then there's gardening. He gave them work. The work to do was to what? Remember the, the verse? To work, uh, what are the words used? Till? Yeah, work and till the soil. Huh? Ten, but that's not in the Bible, though. What's, what's the word? What, what are the two words used in the Bible? Does it say ten in the King James Version? Work and till. That's like two things. Work and till. I know till is one of them. I, can't, I think the other one's work. But anyways, that's what he gave the couple to do. Okay? Huh? Dress. That's it. Dress and till. Is that right? Yeah. Um, Genesis 2.8, and the Lord God, now this is an amazing thing, amazing thing. You know, when we go through the Genesis account of creation, you know, we see God's, and God spoke, and God said, and things just happen at the command of his voice, right? So if God wanted a garden, he could have just said, and God said, let there be a garden. He didn't do that. He did everything else that way. But he didn't do that. What he did, it says right there, and the Lord God planted a garden. He didn't say it into existence. He didn't speak it into existence. He went out there, bent over got on his hands and knees, and showed his original creation, this is what I want you to do. Now, if that doesn't give credence that so we need to get out there and garden, I don't know what does. Uh, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So this is something, this is an institution. We talk about Satan obliterating the Sabbath and marriage. He's already won with gardening. We don't even talk about it. <laughs> So, uh, Genesis 2.15, And the Lord God took the man and put him in a... Oh, there it is. To dress it and to keep it. That's it. Okay. So, 
Isaiah 65, 17, 21 through 20, and 21 through 23 says, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come to mind. And they shall, what are they going to do in this new earth? They're going to build houses. They're going to inhabit them. They're going to plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. It's right there. It's going to be happening in the new earth. It's not like something we're going to get away from. It, ha- it, was happen- it happened in the first creation. It's going to be happen- happening in the creation made new. And they shall not build and have another, uh, and, and, they shall, and they shall not plant and another eat. For in the days of a tree, are the, so for as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Yeah. We're not going to be administrators, you know. I mean, we go to, you know, you know, and it gets. All, I don't know if I cover this, but I'll, I'll go over it right now. There's been a disconnect. Gandhi pointed this out. I have a quote from Gandhi where he said that the disconnect between manual labor and intellect is the greatest threat to Indian society. Well. Nobody's even really brought it up here. We think, I mean, you know, in our culture, the stupid people stayed on the farm. The smart sons, they went to the city and got an education and became anything but manual laborers, right? You got an intellectual job. You got a desk job. You thought you made your money with your brain, not your hands or your back. And I think we have to reconnect those two. You know, I think that's what we, in order to save this, yeah. This day and age, the, uh, the stupid ones didn't survive farming. Mm-mm. Well, the stupid ones, I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to. I knew that would backfire on me. <laughs> well, I'm not saying everybody that stays on the farm is stupid. Of course, I'm, I'm one of those out there. I've, sometimes I feel like I'm stupid, but. Uh, but, uh, uh, but, you know, I think we have to reconnect the two, intellectual brain work and manual work, and the two need to go together. And really, if you're going to do this type of farming, and we went over it today, it was all biology to this morning. You know, it was a layman's biology class this morning, and biology is a science, and biology takes some intellect to figure out. You know, you have to be a good observer, and you've got to ask questions, good questions, and you've got to come to reasonable, logical conclusions. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not a... You know, if you leave the dummy on the farm and the smart person goes to the city, well, the smart person gets dumb in the city, and the dummy on the farm is going if to, he, if he's left on his own, he might get smarter. But if he's going to listen to the intellectuals who want to sell him fertilizers and pesticides, he's probably not, we're probably all going to suffer, you know. So, anyways, this is going to happen in the new earth. Okay, pest and disease management. That's my little spiritual side. Now we're going to get into the nuts and bolts. Pest and disease management, don't kill the messenger. Those are aphids. Little... They're Mama Aphid and her little nymphettes there. Uh, and the whole thrust of this, I'm, it's a real simple thing. I, I hope you're not disappointed. But my whole thrust is, we'll get into my whole thrust. And sustainable agriculture model, weeds are the soil testers. People say to me, Scott, you advocate soil tests, which I'm going to get into that tomorrow, soil tests. But um, if you, they say, well, what about in the end times when you know, we can't send our soils away to get them tested and all this kind of stuff? I said, well... You're going to have, in that case, you're going to have to be looking at your soil test and matching it with the weed growth you have. Because weeds can tell you the deficiencies, particular deficiencies you have in the soil. Weeds with a big old tap root usually mean you've got calcium deficiency in the top six inches. Because the tap root, let's think this through. What does the tap root do? It goes way, way, way down, right? Why does the tap root? That weed has, 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 has designed a way to survive where other plants can't. Why can't other plants survive that way? Because there's no, there's no calcium in that soil. But what they do is because calcium is heavy, it's a heavy element, and it sinks. It doesn't really leach off 
into the watershed like nitrogen does, calcium is heavy enough that it'll just sink down through the earth and you'll lose it because of its sinking, right? So you've got to figure some way to keep that calcium up and keep that calcium supply because all that tap-rooted weed, uh, tap weed is doing is reaching down and grabbing way deep calcium where other plants can't do that. They don't have the mechanism to do that, so they can't survive there, but that one can. So you start bringing your, so that, that weed right there tells you that your soil is deficient in calcium. You start adding calcium back to your soil or getting the calcium back up, and pretty soon that weed doesn't want to compete. It, 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 that other things can grow there, and that weed loses its special way to survive. Do you understand the logic behind that? So that weed was telling you have low calcium. And all the other weeds, there's a book, I'm going to get to it, this is not the weed, this is about pests. We're going to get to weeds. Uh, but insects and pests, back to our topic, are about, uh, they're the trash removers. Insects don't have livers like we do. They have simple little digestive systems, right? They can't handle long sugar chains and long protein chains in the plant because they don't have livers. They can't break them apart. Eating a, eating a healthy plant is death to an insect. Okay? So when, when you... Uh, you know, people say, well, I, I just, that doesn't sound right. You need a poison to kill it. No, you don't need a poison. You need healthy soil. You need a healthy soil, healthy microbiology to give you a healthy plant. And when you've got long sugar chains, and that plant is producing long sugar chains and long protein chains, great for our systems. We, we are healthy when we eat long sugar chains and long protein chains and our body breaks them apart. We have the mechanism to deal with it. We, we deteriorate under bad food and simple, simple, you know, short sugar chains and short protein chains. Insects thrive on that stuff, and they, their antenna can pick up the vibration and find it. That's what the antenna do. They don't suck in molecules. They're not all about scent. They can pick up infrared frequency radiations, and, and plants that are diseased and uh, are low in sugar or, or imbalanced in nutrients send off a signal. It's like submarines. You know, submarines, they can identify every submarine on the face of the earth that, because of its signal of its engine and the vibration it makes. Plants are the same way. A sick plant sends off a certain signal that an that a insect says, I can eat that plant. I can't eat this one. It's healthy, but I can eat this one. It's sick. It has a short sugar chain, and if I eat this one, I'll die because it has long sugar chains. But if I eat this one, I won't die because of its signature, you know, its vibration it's sending off. I won't die, and I can live off that. So if we have healthy soil, we have healthy plants, we have no pest problems. You don't have to go buy something at the store. It might take a year or two to get that to that point, and you might have to sit there and look at the insects eating your plants for a while. But eventually, if you stick to it, you'll get to that point. You just got to have faith. Uh, pest and disease managed. The best, uh, best insect and disease deterrent is a high, high bricks plant. Uh, I didn't bring it, but here it is in a picture. I'll, I'll try to have it over there, uh, uh, over there uh, at some point. I'll show you that. Well, actually, if, you, if somebody brings a fruit in tomorrow, we'll bricks it and see how it bricks out at. Bricks is out at, okay? But, um, but this is a refractometer, and basically all it is. Look at that, that picture is, is of my compost pile. Look at all the sow bugs in there. See all that shiny stuff? That's, that's the bacterial uh, uh, slime I was talking about. That's good stuff. That's forming aggregation in my compost. I don't know why I put it in there, but it's got really nothing related to the bricks. I don't know where my mind was going with that. But, uh, um, but this is a refractometer, and basically all that is, this is what you see when you look through that viewpoint, um, when that, in the scope over there. And basically all it is is a prism. What does a prism do? Bends light, right? When you put the juice of a leaf or the juice of a fruit, drop about four or five drops on that glass right there, close the lid so you get a nice even film of that juice. What happens is 
it'll bend the light a little further because it's passing through a thin film of that juice, right? Well, that's what you're measuring here. You're measuring that extra refraction. You know what refraction is. You're just bending light rays through a glass, right? Well, when you send it through some juice, it's all in the same, that, that's what that, you can't just drop drops in there. You got to make it, throw that over so it's a thin film, even film, no air bubbles. And then, and then you'll see the extra refraction in this uh, brick scale. They call it bricks because the German guy who designed it was named Bricks. Okay, don't get thrown off on that. It's just measuring dissolved solids. Dissolved solids are an indication of nutrient density. And high bricks food is going to taste sweeter. You're going to be attracted to it. You know, kids don't like to eat their vegetables. Well, kids have not been corrupted. You know, they're still innocent little things. And that's because the vegetables you give them don't have much sugar to it. If you buy them at the store under conventional farming methods, you're going to have low bricks food. I mean, a tomato and from the store that doesn't taste like tomato, it bricks is out about three or four. They've had tomatoes bricks out at 20. I've got mine up to eight, and they taste a heck of a lot better than the ones at the store that taste like four. You can tell the difference in a 1% bricks. If, it, if you go from a one to a two, you can, tell, you can taste the difference, okay? If you go from a one to a 20, oh, man, that's like eating candy. And kids are going to love that. They're going to finally, adult, you got it, you know? I'm not eating my vegetables because these vegetables aren't fit to eat. Give me something that's fit to eat. Go grow this stuff so it's high bricks, and I'll eat my vegetables. And it'll be healthier for you, uh, healthier for you to boot. Uh, because I know, because I'm on at market, I got my carrots up to, I don't know, it doesn't happen all, you know, one season. You're going to have to build, that's, you know, this type of farming, you get better and better every year. So I got my uh, carrots up to eight bricks, I think. Well, they taste a lot better than, the, you know, three bricks carrots at the store. And I have kids, I mean, you know, you know what it does to you when you see your mothers bringing their little two-year-old toddler or three-year-old toddler and saying, well... You know, I had to buy your $3 bunch of carrots, organic carrots, because uh, those are the only ones my child will eat. <laughs> that's proof. I'm not just, I'm not sitting here just saying stuff that sounds good. I mean, that's a, actually, that's actually happened to me. Yeah. Yeah, I got, I got an extractor in here that I can show you how to press the juice out of it. It's, just, it's really just a vice grip, uh, sort of a, a adapted vice grip, and you can press the juice out of a leaf or stuff normally you wouldn't think you could juice, but you can. And you get the juice out of it, and, and when the bricks comes up, and, and okay, that's good for the protein. And I tell you what, getting into this, pest and disease management, if every con even if you didn't like to farm or garden, if every consumer would buy one of these, and I think a cheap one's about 60 bucks, right? You can get them up to a thousand. You can get digital ones too. But uh, if you get them up to, uh, if every consumer would take one in their pocket, and when they go to the grocery store, say, "Hey, can I bricks this before I buy it, or buy it, and then I'll decide if I want to buy some more." And you know, you might get the produce manager to let you. And and if it bricks is low, say, "Hey, why do you want me to pay that much money for a low bricks food?" If you would buy, make your produce purchasing pers uh, uh, decisions based on the nutrient density of the food and not just the looks because they can grow a tomato that looks really good but it doesn't taste like anything and it's not doesn't have all the nutrients it should have in it and your health is going to suffer if you eat it it's not it's not just like well it doesn't taste very good i guess it doesn't bother me it doesn't taste good and it doesn't really supply you the health you think you're getting from the tomato that's why i tell Adventists, you know you can be the best vegetarian Adventist in the world vegan raw food whatever but if you're eating out of the conventional grown grocery store you're going to get disease and sickness because the nutrients aren't there anymore. Yeah. Uh, if you have a high brick, would you say you're measuring sugar? Does that automatically correlate more vitamins and minerals? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's not a, it's it's a, it's a, it's a, a good assumption. I mean, I'm I'm not saying 
that you're measuring the sucrose level with bricks. You're not measuring the sucrose level. You're me there's, and there might be certain ways with high nitrates to, uh, to get a false reading. And you, uh, what you're measuring, the dissolved solid is nitrates, which is not good. But if you're trying to grow organically and, you, you know, and you're an honest person and you're not just trying to pull the wool over somebody, uh, bricks is a great thing for measuring how well you're doing as a farmer. It's a great thing if, you know, if they start trying to squirrel around with it, yeah, I'm sure that you can get false readings, you know, but you're going to be able to know that you're getting, that somebody's trying to pull the wool over your eyes because it's not going to taste right. So a high bricks food correlated with a great taste is a good reading, you know. If you get a high bricks food and it's bitter or doesn't taste very good, then you know somebody's been squirreling around with it and just trying to get the bricks up without getting the, you know, some underhanded way, you know what I mean? Well, I got, I'm going to, that's what I was coming over here to do. Excuse me a second. I, I've got, uh, and it's, anybody who got anything free from this table, put it back. Because <laughs> I'm not ready to give you it yet. I'm going to give it to you. But um, I got to explain it first because I want you to know what you're looking at. I just don't want you to take stuff because, you know, these are little companies and it, you know, it costs a lot of money to print those things. So it's, it's um, I told them when I asked them to send me this stuff, I said, I'll make sure because they're wanting to increase their business and all that, but I'm, so I make sure it falls in the hands of people that will use it. So if you're going to use it after I explain it, take it. It's free. But if you're not going to use it, leave it for somebody else, and I'll give it to, you know, just don't take it because it's over there, you know, this kind of thing. And uh, this is what I'm going to give you for free, um, and I want you to pass these around. I hope everybody in the room gets one. I told them to be about 30 people. That's what I was thinking. Here, let me keep one. This is your, who was that, who, the last question, what was it? Yes, thank you. Um, this is it. This is uh, not an exhaustive chart, but it's got a lot of the fruits and vegetables on there. Everybody know the difference between a fruit and a vegetable, right? Mm -hmm. Botanically, it's not the same as culinarily. You know, culinarily, it's about sugars, and uh, certain, certain things with a certain amount of sugar are classified as a fruit, and they don't have the amount of sugar that counts, uh, count as a vegetable. In the plant world, botanically, anything with a pulpus, a pulp wrapped around the seed is a fruit. Uh, is a fruit. So a tomato is a fruit. An avocado is a fruit. Uh, squash is a fruit because it's pulp around a seed, right? It's the thing. It's the swollen ovule of a flower, right? That is always a fruit. Anything when you eat the leaf or the stem or the flower, that's a vegetable. It's kind of like in the Bible, you know. You know the the grains and everything were. Well, I don't want to get into that, but anyway, um, know the difference. Between, I don't know why I got into that, but anyway, uh, here you see on the top of this, the top of this thing is, it says uh, poor, poor, average, good, and excellent. Well, the thing is, in the store, you know, you get a tomato, and I just use tomatoes because everybody knows those. You, you, they constantly come in at four, three, and four, and five. If you just go homegrown fresh tomato, usually, even conventionally, usually you can get it a couple bricks of higher net, maybe a brick or two higher net, and it tastes so much better. And you say, wow, I got a six bricks tomato. You know, this is heaven, you know. Uh, this is so much better. But look at how, look at what they've tested on uh, tomatoes, great bricks, 12. And I've heard some, some guys say they can even get 20 on, a, on especially yellow tomatoes. Yellow cherries have got the highest sugar content of any of them. Uh, but imagine, if, you know, thinking a six bricks tomato tastes great, Imagine what a 12 bricks tomato would taste like. I mean, you know, it's beyond, uh, I've never experienced it yet. I've only, only experienced an eight bricks tomato and that was really good. Uh, so I'm not, I haven't even reached excellent yet. And like I said, this is a long-term thing. It takes a while to get the biology going. And another thing that's gonna raise your bricks is growing biologically friendly. 
getting those microbes to, to interact with the roots and get all that spectrum of nutrients into the plant. Because if you grow just using NPK fertilizers like conventional agriculture does, you get yield, but you don't, all you get is a bunch of nitrogen and a bunch of water in that plant. It doesn't taste like anything. And consequently, the bricks is really low. There's not a lot of nutrient density there. And consequently, your health suffers, even though you're a vegetarian. If you get high bricks food and your, your bricks are up here at 10 and 12 and 20, you're going to be a lot healthier person and the only way, and you're going to be a lot more ecologically friendly farmer because that's the only way you can get high bricks. Uh, the old ones are one, and the, the, but that's okay. The main part is this chart, okay? The, uh, don't feel left out because uh, this is just proven to you that uh, they tested uh, grocery store beans and uh, garden beans, and manganese, garden beans were higher. Uh, zinc, higher. Everything, everything was higher. And where it really comes into play is calcium, and I've seen some other ones... Uh, where vitamin C is another one that, you know, some, they're about even, but you know, it depends on the vitamin or the uh, element you're talking, or the uh, mineral you're talking about. But calcium and vitamin C seem to be a lot more in uh, high bricks food, a lot more uh, in more quantities in high bricks food. Okay, so this is, you've got your very own bricks chart. All you need to do is go out and um, get a refractometer. And I got one, uh, the guys I use here, high bricks gardens, no. The guys I use are Hybrix Home. Luke Limmer's at Hybrix Home. Um, he, 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 you know, he sent a, a refractometer, and I, I'm going to devise some way to give it to. Uh, I don't, he sent it to me, but I, I got one already. So uh, I thought maybe I'd devise some kind of. I'll ask some, maybe a test or something, and whoever gets the highest score on the test gets the refractometer. <laughs> so stay tuned. Stick it with the class. Don't leave, huh? But doesn't this bricks depend on the type of tomato soup? We had tomatoes this summer. Mm -hmm. We had them growing side by side. Some were really sweet, and some were not, but they were a different kind. Yeah, sometimes it does depend on Like I said, yellow cherries are usually bricks out higher than you know red tomatoes. Their sugar content in a yellow tomato is, uh, is higher than the acid content. In a red tomato, the acid content is higher than the sugar content. So uh, you're going to read the bricks on the sugar content on the yellow. Yellow is going to be higher. Uh, and see that I, I wanted, at our local farmers market. I, I thought a good thing would be to have a bricks contest between farmers. Yeah. I mean, well, most of the farmers that are organic farmers that I hang with, you know, in my circle of friends, uh, they don't know about this stuff. I'm telling you stuff. You know, to me, I'm a, you know, I'm I'm an out there person, you know, because uh, they don't do it. They just throw compost and manure on their organic gardens, you know, and you know, and that's seeing them through. But getting into this brick stuff, they don't want to do this because they're afraid what they might show. You know. <laughs> But I'm well. I mean, I might get beaten by some of these guys. I don't know. But it would be a good test. It would be a friendly competition to see who could get a and, and, learn and do the same variety because you know, it, uh, and and everybody. There's certain varieties everybody grows, like Cherokee purples. There are an heirloom that everybody grows, or uh, sun gold yellows. There are yellow cherry. So yeah. I just have a corn question. I've grown the corn that you get out of the seed catalog, mm -hmm. the hybrid sweet corn, mm -hmm. and then I've grown open pollinators. Mm -hmm. I want to save my own seeds. Very much not as sweet as this hybrid. Hybrid. So yeah. Well, well, true corn is a grain. Right. Okay. It's true corn. So yeah. The, the sweet corn is a hybrid. It's always going to be a hybrid. It, it didn't happen in the net. And there's nothing wrong with hybrids. I, I don't. I'm not an heirloom only person. I grow hybrids and heirlooms. You know, because uh, heirlooms have certain advantages. But they're not. They're not. You know, all you're doing is playing B when you're. You know, you're developing a hybrid. You're just taking pollen out of one 
one and putting it cross-pollinating your own, and you can't grow the same thing again. It won't go be true to self when it regrows. It might. You got like a 20% chance of it being true to self, but when you're trying to farm for a living, you can't afford 20% chance. You know, you need 100% or 90%. So uh, I'm okay with hybrids, and but you know, corn. When it comes to corn, I hate growing corn in a small garden. Now, if you got an acre you want to do, then grow corn. You know, and you got a tractor, and you can get your tractor out and sow a bunch of corn and uh, go for it. But corn requires lots of water and it requires a lot of nitrogen because it's a grass, it's a grain. And true corn is a hard kernel like grits. I mean, you ground it into flour. That's true corn. That's your heirloom varieties. Sweet corn is a super specialized hybrid that takes a lot of attention, more attention than I'm willing to give to it, you know. Uh, I love sweet corn, but in a small space, I don't want to grow it. It takes up too much room per fruit and all that stuff. Anyways, I'm getting off the subject. Okay, how do you get hybrids? Balanced biology, uh, balanced chemistry, and balanced physics, and in this form, it's energy. You know, energy is just movement. Movement is energy. So when electrons, when you put something in the soil, you get this, you know, decoupling of molecules and a recopulation of compounds, right? And that movement of breaking apart and putting back together in new ways, that's energy. And really, that's what we all live on, plants, us, we all live, when we eat something in food, it's not like we're just taking molecules of tomato and making them into our flesh. Uh, we're actually taking that tomato, our bodies are breaking it apart with some acids, and then our bodies are putting it back together in forms we can use in all this other place. And that's, that's what we live off, that exchange of ionic energy. Okay, that's movement. And plants are the same way. And you understanding that, you're gonna have a balanced approach to farming. Microbes. The elements are important, like calcium, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, uh, boron, and how that energy, you, you want to keep the energy up too. And there's ways to do that. Okay, so let me get back over here. Oh, we had a couple left over? So everybody got one? There's one back in the corner. Okay, this guy is Gary Zimmer. You can get his book. Uh, it's really good. Uh, I get some quotes from here talking about disease and pest management. It says, in general, crop pests and disease play a role of guardians, not wanton destroyers. That takes a little bit of different thinking. That is, that is they, are, uh, so they selectively attack and destroy, uh, which means eat, plants that are weak and unfit, plants that are sick and would not produce good food for animals or humans. There, it's not just me saying this. This is Gary Zimmer, who has a great business up in Michigan. Uh, he grows corn. He's, got, he's a dairyman. He, grow, he grows his grass for his cows to graze on. He sells dairy products from his grass-fed cows that, are, that he makes sure he knows what he's doing with that grass. And he even says that. Okay, and he's an expert. Many experiments have proved that plants given too much nitrogen fertilizer, although they may grow fast and look greener, uh, are actually physiologically unbalanced and more susceptible to pest and disease attack than plants grown with balanced fertility. Now, we were talking about measuring the bricks on a fruit. Actually, once you get to the fruit stage, you really can't do, it's pretty much done. I mean, you can't correct anything, right? You want to get to the point where you're able to go out there and if things are, you get starting to get an insect attack, you can do something then in order to save the crop, right? And, and correct whatever's wrong and not just wait till the end, you know? So what you could do is you can actually bricks the leaves. Wad up the leaf and, and get the extractor and put the drops on the thing and bricks the leaves. If you can keep your bricks in, in the leaf up to 10 and 12, again, you'll have the high nutrient density in that sap. Bugs won't touch it. It's death to a bug to eat something that high bricks. 
So that's the way you can use it out in the field. The way you get hybrid is you usually f you use foliar sprays to bring that bricks up. Foliar sprays are give you a temporary fix. They don't, they're not a permanent fix, and they're not going to address your soil imbalances, but they will, what do they call that, a sort of a, give you an immediate response without killing the biology if you do it right. Yep. There's another way you can trick that insect, and that is spray white sugar, you know, put it in a sprayer. Mm -hmm around the edge where the insects are coming in, mm -hmm. and they'll go for it and die of starvation. Yeah, I'm going to get to that. I would use something other than just table sugar, though, because um, that's pretty simple sugar. Plants might actually might attract insects <laughs> because they like simple sugars. Uh, how, how plants resist pests and disease without toxic chemicals? Genetic factors? Uh, that's basically what you're doing when you're hybridizing. You know, you're, or, or when you're saving seed. Let's say you're saving heirloom seed. Um, you know, you want to pick the first, the, the, you want to get the seed from the first fruit because you want everything to be quick. So you want to have that as a genetic capability to come on, be the first one, be the first eggplant to come on. Save the seed from the first eggplant. Don't wait till the end of the season and say, well, it's the end of the season. I better save some seed now. No, you want to save, if you're going to save seed, you want to save it from the very first ones because they're the healthiest and you want to breathe that into the plant from, with successive generations, right? You don't want to get the seeds at the end of the line when the energy's almost used up. That first fruit is going to be the best. You know, it's got all the energy, right? And the seeds are going to be denser and stronger and you want to breathe that successively, okay? And uh, so that's a genetic factor. Induced resistance, this is how you protect the plants from, uh, plants from pests and disease, is uh, external help, whether natural or man-made, that aids the plants, like a farmer's fertility management program. You know, um, if I make sure my, my soil is good so my bricks are high, I've induced a sort of a, uh, an outside resistance to insects because of my management practices, right? Uh, I could put on this, there's an organic product called Surround. Uh, which actually coats it in sort of like a, a chalkish thing, and it's a sort of a physical barrier. That's another induced resistance. Then you have plant mechanisms. Uh, an example would be, be the, the glossy sheen on a leaf. If you've got something that looks kind of velvety and not very uh, little porous, that's probably going to be a weak plant. If you can get a, a leaf that's thick, you don't really want big leaves. You want thick leaves. Thick leaves are a lot healthier than big old leaves, okay? You want thick leaves, and if they got a nice gloss or a nice sheen on the top of the leaf, that, is a, that sheen is there to protect it from disease. We all know the hairs coming out of tomatoes on the stem. Those are, uh, those are actually to make it difficult for, you know, bugs to crawl up it. It's a lot more difficult. You know, in nature, everything looks for the path of least resistance, you know, and if it's too much trouble, if you're going to, if a bug is, or a, a parasitic bug or a, a plant-killing bug, if it is going to have to expend too much energy, to get the energy from the food, it's not going to go. It's not worth it to go get the the food because they they're actually going to expend too much energy trying to get the food. Everybody wants to do things the easiest way possible, and that happens not only with humans but with bugs. You know, uh, repellent chemicals. Actually, when a, a when a when a plant gets attacked, it can actually make and produce its own chemicals that'll that'll be poisons to that bug. And, and healthy plants do that better than sick plants. So just like in, in our Adventist health message, we talk about the immune system. And, you know, if you have a good immune, everybody's got cancer. But if you have a good immune system, your body fights that, right? It's the same in the plant world. Plants have immune systems too. And if the plants are healthy, they're going to be able to risk disease and insect attack. I've seen it. I know it. It, it happens. I'm not being, I'm not, 
because really I haven't talked about, you thought you're probably, when I started this talk, you're always going to tell us, go buy this product, go buy that product. You know, these are organic or whatever. I'm not telling you that. I'm saying have a healthy, your best insect deterrent is a healthy plant. And I'm not crazy because Thomas Jefferson lived before World War II, which is when all chemicals sort of started coming mainstream. And he, he, got a letter, he was writing a letter to his daughter. It says, when the earth, this is his daughter, uh, had complained about her farm not doing well. He says, when the earth is as rich and bids it, it, when the earth is rich, it bids defiance to droughts, yields in abundance, and best quality. I suspect that the insects, which have harassed you, have not been encouraged by the, have, have, you have been encouraged, or, or have been encouraged by the feebleness of your plants, and that has been produced by the lean state of your soil. Now, Thomas Jefferson is not an idiot, and he's saying, he's basically saying the same thing I just said. I'm actually, I'm regurgitating uh, something Thomas Jefferson believed. Uh, and he was a pretty good farmer. And he didn't have toxic chemicals to put on him. How did he do it, you know? If you needed toxic chemicals to grow a crop, we, we wouldn't be here right now. We, you know, <laughs> we, the toxic chemicals only came on, online about 19, in the 1940s. How can we get rid of them? Not use them, not buy them. You vote with your dollar. You know, you, you, have, you say, well, I'm just one person. What do I? If you quit buying this stuff, it'll go out of business. Uh, USDA, this is the United States Department of Agriculture. What could, what could they possibly say that would be any good? Well, they actually gave cr credit to this as well-fed plants are usually less susceptible to soil-borne organisms and are per that are uh, than are poorly nourished plants. Well-fed plants are usually susceptible to soil-borne organisms than are poorly nourished plants. Uh, I'm, I'm missing something there. Oh, okay, less susceptible. Good fertility may, uh, may so enhance the resistance of the, the host plant that the parasite cannot successfully attack the roots. There's the USAD saying basically the same thing. Uh, Elliot Coleman, everybody know who Elliot Coleman is up in Maine? Anybody live from Maine? He's like the, he wrote a couple of books and now he's like the godfather of small organic farming. He's a really neat guy. Uh, I met him once and, and uh, you know, he's just as, he's really, you're going to find, you know, small farmers are pretty nice sort of salt of the earth, humble people. Anyway, uh, Galileo uh, realized that he would have to mold anew the brains of men in order to establish another understanding. You know, the earth is round instead of flat. The change I'm proposing uh, from a preoccupation with plant uh, pest destruction to a focus on plant construction requires a similar remolding. Elliot Coleman is basically saying, you know, the, the contortions humanity went through when they you know, we went from the earth being flat to the earth that's actually a sphere, you know, back in the day. I mean, Galileo almost lost his life over that one. Well, he's saying that pretty much right now, things are so much geared towards toxic uh, rescue farming that to say that the plant can be healthy enough on its own to resist insects is like you might as well be saying the earth is round back when they, everybody said the earth was flat, you know what I mean? People just don't think you can feed people without toxins. And he's saying you can. Um, but, is, but it is a change that will allow us to eliminate all pesticides and simultaneously grow more nutritious crops. Okay, so that's basically what I'm saying. Uh, Dan Scow, who writes one of the books I recommend, said, I got a book reading list I'm going to give you. But basically I find that, okay, okay, here, sugar, you're talking about sugar? Putting it on? He says, basically I find fish and seaweed combination with phosphoric acid. So fish emulsion, seaweed, uh, seaweed, uh, they call it a maxi crop makes it. It's a... Recon uh, soluble seaweed. And you mix that with a little uh, phosphoric acid 
is quite effective in keeping insects out of the field. Say, let's say you have a low bricks. You say your bricks is four and you're getting insect attack, but you don't want to lose the crop. So how can I do something without playing poisons on them? Mix these together and you will give a temporary boost in your bricks and insects will go on by. Uh, so that's it. Uh, when you deliver a higher level of dissolved solids into the plant, the result will be a healthier plant. Finally, and you do that with foliar feeding. Everybody know what foliar feeding is? Foliar feeding is uh, when you actually take a liquid that's biologically friendly and you spray it on the leaves and you actually feed the plant through the leaf rather than through the soil. And it's a temporary thing. You do it, it's one of those things you do as you're growing. Not, usually fertilization is done in the fall before you plant with dry fertilizers. Foliar feeding is something that kind of is the icing on the cake. You can't just do foliar feeding. You gotta address the problems in your soil. But once you get the soil working, then you can come in and temporarily raise that low bricks plant up into a higher bricks using non-toxins and let the bricks take care of the insect problem, okay? Such uh, as what? Huh? Any, any, any of your crops, doesn't matter. No, I mean the crop, what is it, you spray on uh, Phosphoric acid, fish emulsion, and then soluble seaweed. Yeah, I think I've got, uh, there, there's my, I knew people would be asking, so I put that in there. Uh, in one gallon of distilled water, you can do about 2,000 square feet, because you say, wow, that's a lot for just a gallon of water. Well, I'm telling you, when you foliar feed, the trick is to do just a mist. You don't want to drench the leaf, you want to come in in the early morning, when the stomata on the underside of the leaf are open and you want to come in with a light, light mist. Sometimes you have to buy a special nozzle and get a light, light, almost like a smoke, you know, a vapor coming out of the end of your wand there. And you just want to race through the underside of the leaf. A little bit goes a long way when it comes to foliar feeding. You dripping it off there, putting a heavy spray on dripping it off is not going to do near the good as a light vapor will. So that's why two, uh, one gallon can cover 2,000 square feet of garden space. And it's cheaper for you, right? Um, do, uh, do what it says there. The liquid fish, about, and you want fish that comes in about 50% solids, Dan says. Uh, one what, that's a tablespoon. 1.0 one table, 1 tablespoons of uh, soluble seaweed. Maxi Crop makes that. And then about 5 teaspoons of phosphoric acid, food grade acid, and you will raise that bricks temporarily and take care of your insect problem. Everybody got that? Huh? 6.5 tablespoons of liquid fish meaning a fish emulsion or a fish hydrolysate, something like that. Emulsion, hydrolysate, there's pros and cons to each of those. Okay, ready? You can do that every 14, 10 to 14 days. This liquid fish is something you can buy on the market? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just ground up fish. Usually, usually they either do it with a heat process, then it's a fish emulsion, and they say that destroys some good things, or they do it with a biological process and liquefy it with biology and they, that's a fish hydrolysate. And they say that cold processing is actually doesn't destroy as much. But then there's pros and cons to both. So you can read the literature and figure it out for yourself. I, I use them both, you know. I mean, it seems to help either way. Uh, Malcolm Beck, he's a really old guy now, but he's a really neat guy, and he wrote a couple of books I really like. He's, a, he's, he's not a scientist. He never went to college. He worked on the railroads most of his life. But man, is he a good plant person. And he had organic farms, and he's made a million dollars in compost. His, his famous quote is, you know, I made a lot more money selling compost than I ever made selling vegetables, you know. So, um, but anyways, he talks about fire ants here. And uh, again, uh, uh, one of the best, uh, present fire, one of the best of Malcolm Beck's recipe of equal parts orange oil, liquid humate, 
uh, molasses and uh, five ounces, uh, take five ounces, put that in a gallon of water and uh, take the final product and pour it on your anthill and you get rid of fire ants. Uh, wasps, the wasps are beneficial. Every gardener should love your wasp. You know why? Because wasps in the adult stage, they have to beat their wings like hummingbirds, you know, really fast, like bees. So they need sugar. So adult wasps feed on nectar. They're nectarians, right? Just like bees do. But they don't, they don't have the bodies to go inside a flower. So they like, if you can plant flowers that have a, the flat face, I call them flat face flowers. They don't have deep pockets that you have to go in. Wasps don't like to crawl in stuff. They like to kind of get it from the outside while they're flying, you know. And so like Queen Anne's lace, uh, buckwheat flower is a flat flower. Plant those flowers that attract wasps because wasps, what they do is they come in and get bugs and feed it to their larva. Go back to their nest and feed it to the larva. So when the egg hatches, the larva has this bug to eat, you know, packed in the little cell, right? And so they take care of a lot of insects if you have wasp in your garden. You should, if you have a wasp that's in your way, I always try to suit up and pick it up and tape it somewhere else, you know, in the shade that they'll like, but just sort of out of my path. And, uh, and wasp, they don't die when they sting you. They can give you a warning sting. Wasps are intelligent. Some, they've even trained wasps. They got, they're probably the most intelligent insect out there. And, um, and uh, they'll give you a warning sting. Is like, okay, I'm getting a little worried about you, you know, because they're only trying to protect their area. You know, they're not like evil things. And, uh, and they do so many good things in the garden. You want to promote them. Huh? Oh, you want to promote them. So uh, always, your wasps are good things. Wasps are, that's another way you can manage pests in your, your garden by uh, encouraging wasps. Charles uh, Walters, he was, uh, he's the guy who invented acres. He rode Rachel's Silent Spring back in the 60s. He was a journalist major. So what he did is he went out and uh, ghost wrote books with farmers who weren't authors. And now we have books like uh, Eco Farm that he wrote. Uh, then we have, uh, and what he did is he interviewed farmers. He wasn't a farmer, but he interviewed farmers that hadn't gotten on the chemical bandwagon because he was afraid of uh, Things happening like Rachel Carson said in Silent Spring. Has anybody read that book, uh, Silent Spring by Rachel Carson? No? It's kind of the thing that set off the whole ecology movement, you know, back in the 60s. And he read it, and he says, well, what can I do as a journalist major? And he says, I know. I'll go out and find farmers that haven't gotten on the chemical bandwagon, and I'll write books that tell people how to farm their way. And that's what he did, and that we have Acres USA Publishing now. And some of his quotes were... Uh, you know, there's 640, I call him the Mark Twain of uh, farming because he's kind of satirical and com uh, comedic. He says, uh, of more than 640,000 insects species, only 500 can be considered pests. That means that other, the other remainder of that 500 is beneficial insects. They actually do your thing. So don't think all, pests, all insects are bad. Only insects that are pests are bad. And usually the good guys, just like in their microbiology, can take care of the bad guys. That even works above ground as well as below ground. Uh, the rest are beneficial. Of the 26 insect orders, 15 contain predaceous parasitic insects. Uh, meaning, the these, see, when you're a vegetarian, if you're an insect, we don't like the vegetarians. We like the meat eaters in the insect world because they eat other insects. <laughs> they eat the vegetarians. We're go, go carnivore insects, right? Uh, more important, perhaps, is the fact that while many plants harbor a great variety of insects, most insects only dine on one plant. So that makes your job a little easier. There's a few insects. I mean, it's really weird how insects are dead because I've got beans, and, you, and I have the and, I, and the Mexican bean beetle is attacking my cucumbers. 
I'm like, they're two totally different plants. Why have I got Mexican bean beetles on my cucumbers? You know, it doesn't really make sense. But what he's saying is, you know, usually one insect likes one plant. It's very com- not very common that you have insects that just eat everything. Maybe grasshoppers, maybe Japanese beetles, there's a few, but most of them, you know, that insect eats that plant, so it makes your life a little easier. When they exhaust the food supply or die or become dormant, high temperatures can kill them. You got winters that kill a lot of insects. Evaporation and uh, desiccation, which means, uh, you know, losing their uh, water, orbit them as constant dangers. Low temperatures annihilate cell structure. Very few insects can survive 31 degrees Fahrenheit, and the indestructible grasshopper (laughs) folds like a wet noodle when the Fahrenheit temperature drops as low as uh, 20 degrees for for two days. The USDA recently has been forced to admit that of the 500 insect crop destroyers, 267 have built up a marked resistance to insecticides. Obviously, insecticide makers just don't understand bugs because bugs can mutate around our synthetic chemicals faster than we can make the synthetic chemicals. But that doesn't stop the synthetic chemical makers because they just patent a new chemical and you'll go out and buy it. So it's an endless hamster wheel we're on, you know, when you're into the, into the chemical trap. Uh, basically, this guy was uh, Philip Callahan, and he was talking about the antenna and how moths are attracted to uh, infrared radiation. And uh, they've got these uh, leaning uh, high towers over in Ireland that, uh, for some reason, seem to be able to collect energy. It gets kind of new agey, but it is something, uh, you know, there's been a lot of uh, speculation on why these towers were built. Nobody really knows. Um, and, but they sort of shape like an antenna. You know, and they, they thought maybe uh, some of the ancient Irish people were onto something. Uh, because of the sugar accumulated in uh, minerally imbalanced systems, is out. Um, oh, when sugar is disproportionately accumulated in a specific part of the plant, it indicates an artificially induced condition. Because the sugar accumulated in, in, which, uh, in such minerally imbalanced systems is out of balance with the rest of the plant, that imbalance is broadcast in IR uh, infrared radiation emanated by the plant thus signaling the garbage collector insects to come and clean up. Insects get sick from healthy plants. And again, the antenna on plants pick up that IR radiation of a sick plant because it has a different frequency than a healthy plant. And, and we know there's subtle energies around there. I mean, it's not all new age. I mean, sometimes people get scared. That sounds too new age. And sometimes the, the, these kind of people do get a little mystical, you know, and, and, and I, I can't go there. But, but there is, we know that there they set clocks because, you know, we have crystal watches. We know there's a vibration track, and they, you can keep time with the vibrations out of a crystal rock. I mean, there's something scientifically to that. We know that moons affect the tides, and the moon can affect the soil. Like somebody was saying uh, in here that, the, you know, the, the, the soil, the soil, uh, the groundwater is affected by the tides in the moon. It's not like it's mystical. It can be explained, by, a lot of it can be explained by science. Now, here's the thing. When you're thinking about this, think of these two guys. Louis Pasteur, which we all know of, nobody's ever heard of this guy, but these guys were contemporaries and they debated one another. And Pasteur was always saying, you know, the germ is everything and the terrain is nothing. And Bernard was always saying the terrain is everything and the germ is nothing. Basically, we followed Louis Pasteur and said, you know, we got to make a chemical and attack the chemical and kill the germ. You know, it's called the germ theory. Bernard said, if you, if you change the environment, you don't have to worry about the germ. Amen. And basically, that's the Adventist health message. We say if you have a good immune system, you feed yourself with good food, you exercise, you rest, you do the eight laws of health, the environment called our bodies is able to not harbor pathogens as easily as 
when you don't take care of the environment. It works the same thing in the, in the natural world. It doesn't change. So all while we're quick to you know, amen the thing with our bodies and our health message, we need to apply that same thinking with our farm management. And quit relying on toxic chemicals. Um, now, one of the keys to proper bug management is to be able to identify your bug. Okay? Now, you can see all these bugs are all in the same order. They're all hemiptera, which, uh, hemiptera, which means I think it has something to do with five. See, there's a triangle there, there's a triangle there, there's a triangle there, there's a triangle there, and there's a triangle up there. There's five triangles. And usually they all have that in common. They have that five triangle layout. But some of these, this is an ambush bug. It's a predator. It kills other bugs. We like him. But he, he looks very similar to this stink bug. That's an herbivore, and it can be a predator. It kind of, it's an omnivore. It kind of eats bugs and plants. So I've seen some bugs do that. They cross over. When they're eating bugs, they're a help. When they're eating your plants, they're not a help. Uh, but you can see they're the same order. They're the same suborder. Uh, then when you get to the family, they start kind of getting different. And then when you get to the genus, they get all different. They're, well, yeah, they're all different. And then you get to the species within that genus. So if you can identify your bug, and that's where your county extension agents come in handy, is that you can, get, and now, you know, with the Internet, we can just take a picture, send it to our county extension agent, or somebody, in, in, what do they call the study of insects? Um, entomology. entomology. Send it to the entomology department, and they'll identify that bug. And then when you have... The reason this is so good is when you have the genus species of a bug, the family genus and species of a bug, instead of typing up stink bug, which, you know, what you call a stink bug in Tennessee is a different bug than what I call a stink bug in Georgia is different from what a guy in Washington calls a stink bug. You know, common names, and you know, they get passed around where you, you're not really able to pinpoint it. But if you go into the Internet and you Google on the Internet this family genus, you're going to get scientific documentation on how to control that bug. That's why you need to identify it with its, you know, its, what do they call that, taxonomy. You know, identifying things by their uh, Latin names. <coughs> and then you put organic in the search, and you get organic ways to, to, uh, to, organic ways to uh, control that bug. Okay, does that make sense? So that's why you need, and, and, and today with the Internet, this is a lot easier than it used to be. Used to have to buy books and all this stuff. Now you can just punch it on the internet. You can send it to your, uh, you know, email it to your county extension agent or your entomology department. Uh, this is a good website, bugguide.net. You don't have to remember the rest of it. You'll be able to click to the rest of it, and you can actually identify bugs with that website. It's made to identify bugs. And then once you get the, like I said, once you get the Latin names, you can Google that and put organic next to it and find good ways to deal with stuff. Here's one I use. I don't know. All there is to know about it, but I, here's the one I use. It's called BT. You ever heard of that, BT? Bactotharyngesis, Bacillus thuringiensis. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Um, BT for short. They make corn. This is GMO corn. You ever heard of BT corn? That's, the, that's, that's GMO corn. They've actually found a way to take a... This is a, this is a bacteria. Now, when you take a, a gene out of that bacteria and splice it into corn, you get corn that resists disease because you, they've cross-DNA'd the corn with this bacteria. That's bad. We don't want to eat GMO, GMO corn. But when you apply it topically on the leaf, the, the soft-bodied insect eats it. And usually soft-bodied insects are like caterpillars and turn into moths. They eat the bacteria, and basically it gives them um, diarrhea. And they just dehydrate themselves by, you know, because they poop themselves to death. And see, here's one that uh, I found hanging on. That's a, I had to spray it on my, uh, uh, what was it, cabbage one time. 
And it was fun going around and seeing all the dried up uh, diarrhea, poop themselves to death in, uh, insects. It used to look like that, now they look like this. And it doesn't affect humans at all. So you can eat the day of. And that's a, 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 an organic biological control that you can use if you're, let's say, you know, you're just trying to save your crop. Okay, your crop's not resisting them on their own like they should. So you just want to get into, well, that's one of the things that's very target specific. You're not killing everything like you do with pyrethrins. You know, even though pyrethrins are organic, they kill everything. These, the bug actually has to eat the leaf before it has the problem. And it's only good for soft-bodied insects. Uh, it doesn't really affect beetles, you know, because they got a hard shell. They can keep the moisture in. But these guys will lose their moisture real quick when they eat this bacteria. But the bad thing is, well, the good thing is it dissolves, really, it dissolves in water. You spray it on. And this is it's not a foliar. You just spray it on heavy topically, okay? It's not like foliar feeding. This is a... This is something you're applying as an insect, uh, sort of an insect, an organic insecticide. And it only lasts about two days in the sun. So you want to do it on a cloudy day or right before evening because you don't want to be a bright sunny day when you're putting this on because it, it deteriorates in sunshine. And, of course, if you get a rain, it'll wash off. And one of the things you can do to help it stop from washing off is put a little, um, you know, um, non, um, you know, that antibacterial stuff. Don't use that because that defeats the whole purpose. Just get some dishwashing soap and put a couple of drops in there. It'll help it adhere to the leaf a little better. Uh, and you get it on, uh, you want to get, you, if you do this, you want to do it early. Don't wait till it gets bad. You know, do it when you first see signs of the little white moth flicking around above your uh, uh, coal crops, your brassica crops. Uh, hard shell bugs are a little harder to deal with. You basically have to go out there and pick them off by hand. There's not a lot of target-specific... I mean, you can use pyrethrins, and you can th use things that wipe everything out, and they're organic, but you don't want to wipe everything out, so then you're left with just hand-picking. And I've seen some people go on, if it's really bad, you can go on with a shop vac through your fields, and you just suck them, <laughs> suck them off. That's usually a little faster than picking. Yeah? We usually battle with these things all summer. Last summer, I put ashes all over my garden. You had potatoes? I never saw one of them. I never saw potatoes. Ashes? Okay. All, dusted it with ashes. No, I killed the red and blue soil before I planted anything over my entire garden. With wood ash. Yeah. Okay. And I had another patch that I didn't. Well, maybe it interrupted their life cycle somehow. I don't know, but there was bugs where I didn't put the ashes, but here I, I had the most beautiful potatoes I ever grew. Okay. Well, that's something you learn, and you can pass it on. I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remember that for myself next time. But the problem with ashes is, you know, you're going to bump up your potassium because the ashes are, you know, you get your potassium, you know, it got rid of the bug, but you might send it in a different direction with, because of the high potassium that... that uh, yeah. Well, what you're probably doing is you're not killing it topically. You're, you're probably breaking its life cycle. Some, you know, in the ground, it disrupts the uh, egg or the larva or something like that. So there's... That's another thing you're going to have to, uh, when, you're doing, when you're doing this pest management, is learn the bug's life cycle. And maybe you can't get it when it's a beetle, but maybe you can get it when it's a larva. Maybe you can get it when it's an egg. Maybe there's something you could do organically that could get it at some point in that life cycle. And all you'll have to do is suffer through one stage and not five or six cycles of the things and they wipe you out, you know. Uh, aphids are really easy to kill. There's, a, of course, you got natural... You could release ladybugs. You can buy ladybugs and release them, but that's a little tricky. I've never done that uh, because sometimes they just fly off. You know? <laughs> but, uh, uh, but insecticidal soap is pretty harmless, and it, it does a number on aphids. So I use insecticidal soap. And you see that OMRI approved right there? Anything that's organic should have that, or it's really not organic. Oh, huh? Organic Materials Research Institute. They actually test these things, and they put a list together, and... 
and they put it on the internet. It's getting updated constantly because there's new products coming online. And the big question is, is this Armory approved? And you know, well, they're still testing it. You know, they don't know yet. You know, and sometimes you just kind of gotta wait. Uh, it's like USDA approval or something. Um, this is what I had this year. Uh, I had a, a, my, this is my 2011 uh, two insects of the year that I hadn't seen before, and it gave me a problem this year, you know. And you always learn something in farming. You know, it's always a, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an adventure. And uh, this year I had, uh, uh, I, this is, I didn't know what these were, but they were like, I looked at my beans, my pole beans, and, and they were covered, not the leaves, but the stems. They were all up and down the stems. And you can see the hairs there, but they're not doing too good of a job on this bug. It doesn't seem to mind it. And uh, these are called the kudzu bug. And they got really prominent in the, I was reading about them. I didn't, I actually had to, at first I didn't know what it was. You know, and I'm like, this can't be good. This is really bad. And uh, they actually suck the juice out of the stem. They don't, they leave the leaf alone. And uh, I called my farmer friends. That's why it's good to have a network of farmer friends. And I said, I sent them a picture. And I said, what is this? And they said, oh, that, you got the kudzu bug. I had it last year, you know. So, uh, I, huh? Kudzu bug. I forget the genus species, but I went and looked up that. And, I, you know, I did all the things I'm telling you to do. And, uh, and uh, I had those this year. And I, uh, what did I do? I think I just, um, I sprayed, I forget what I sprayed on them. I did, did a couple applications, and it seemed to kind of knock them back a little bit. Um, I think I just did some insecticidal soap on them, I think. I'm not real sure right now what I did. But then I had this bug. This is an earwig. Everybody heard, everybody's heard of that, right? And normally, those are things you find in your compost pile or under wood, and they break, they're shredders. They actually decompose, helps, help decompose stuff in that soil food web. And this year, they were just boring holes in my tomatoes, my green tomatoes, mostly. I'm like, wow, I thought these were my good guys. I didn't think these were pests. And, uh, but evidently, for some reason, they, and I don't know really the reason, I'm sure there was a good reason, they actually made holes like this in all of my tomatoes. And they were, some of them were like perfectly round holes. And they were just little holes, but you know, you'd open up the tomato and they're rotten. So how do you, what do you deal with that? You know what I did? I just picked all those tomatoes and destroyed them and break up their life cycle. Don't let them proliferate. Just get rid of those tomatoes. They're never gonna be any good. Nobody wants to eat a tomato with a bug in it. No, I just, uh, um, yeah, I composted them. Just comp put them in the compost. Yeah, where they're, where they're going to be anyway. Yeah, I couldn't eat them. Uh, and I, and I, if I could get the, you know, I cut them and I try to get the bug and just squish the bug, you know. And if you catch it early enough, that's a good, that's a good way to do it, you know. If you've got acres and acres and acres, it's probably unrealistic. But if, you, if you're backyard farming or you've got three acres or less, you can more, you know, that's more than easy to do. And just, just got to catch it early, you know, before it gets out of control. Um, Flea beetles, uh, this is a picture of flea beetle damage on egg, uh, eggplant. Usually, if you're, this year, I didn't have one, my, my soil, I guess, was good enough where my, I didn't have one flea beetle attack. And usually, they just love eggplant, right? You can't get away from them. And really, the only thing, there are little hard shell beetles that you can barely see. And really, the only thing that really works them is a row cover. And therefore, there, there you're creating a physical barrier. Okay, row covers are organic. They don't hurt you, you know, uh, and they keep the flea beetle. Make sure you get on early enough and you're not trapping the flea beetle in, you know. Um, and then here's, see this, this is, this is the uh, Mexican bean beetle, um, uh, which I, uh, we're, we're, I didn't write anything about that, but that is the Mexican bean beetle. And they, they, they can be, um, 
I forget how I control those. I think I just squished those. But uh, here's a wasp, a, parasit a parasitic wasp. And right here, that wasp is laying its eggs. It doesn't have a cell that it takes it to. It's laying its eggs in an aphid. And the egg, it's like something out of a science fiction movie. The eggs hatch inside the body of an aphid and then consume it from the inside out. You know. So you want to attract those type of wasps. And how do you do that? With those little flat play flowers, that little, they're nectarians, and, the, and they love that. They love that uh, nectarian sugar. Uh, Japanese bean beetles, how many, everybody had those? Pretty common. They're, now, they seem to want to eat everything. It didn't really matter what it is. Uh, they're not plant-specific. But the Japanese bean beetle, the way uh, you can take care of it is, number one, there's a couple of ways. This is a tiffia wasp. And it actually go, these things are, they lay their eggs underground, about, I don't know, six inches underground, and that's where you get these grubs. You ever been digging a garden and you come up with these big old nasty looking, and people call them grubs? Well, they're actually the larva state of a Japanese bean beetle. And what happens if you've got good biology and you haven't sprayed a bunch of chemicals, you're going to have these wasps in here, and maybe not the first year, but they'll come because the food source is there. You might have to suffer through Japanese beetle beetles a year, but eventually they will come, and that's the egg. That wasp laid that egg on that grub, and that grub's, it's never going to hatch and become a Japanese beetle. That wasp is going to, that baby wasp is going to uh, devour it. Okay, that's a natural pest control. And nature does it all by itself. I would rather pray to God for that wasp to show up than I would go get some kind of toxic chemical and spray on my bean beetles. Uh, milky spore is a bacteria that affects this larva state. That's how you got to know your larva state. You can't really do anything to attack that beetle once it gets to the adult size, but this bacteria actually uh, digests these larvae too. So you can put milky spore on your soil in the fall. You got to do it like it says, in the fall uh, when it's kind of moist, and, uh, and it lasts for about five years. And, it just, and I, I put this on. I had bad Japanese beetles. I put it on. I haven't had a Japanese beetle since. And it's all done with bacteria. There's nothing, uh, nothing toxic about that. Uh, here's row covers good. They uh, ward off flying bugs. Usually only need them uh, uh, during the younger stage of the plant. Remember, you know, you know even in the wild, uh, you know, when you used to watch those wild kingdom things and, uh, you know, those nature deals, and, the, you know, the lion's always waiting for the weak antelope or the, uh, or the baby, uh, you know, it, it doesn't want to exert its energy after a healthy antelope that can run really fast because it, it requires too much energy to go catch it, right? It waits to find a straggler, something limping along, or a little baby that can't keep up. And it goes after that one because it doesn't require as much of its own energy to get it. Well, bugs are the same way. Usually you're going to get bug attacks when the, when the plants are in their infant stage because they're tender and they're young and they haven't really developed the immune system to, you know, to fend off these uh, things. So usually you only have to put these row covers on during the uh, early stages, and then when they get big enough, you can take it off and they can fend for themselves. Okay, and a good way to keep those row covers on is with uh, sandbags. Um, and there's just certain ways to do that, get the row cover on. This is from my cucumber crop, and we had a bad year for um, anthracnose, which is an airborne fungus. And here it is in the beginning stages, and here's when it's left to go um, uh, too long. And the best way you do is to pick off the infected leaves when they're this way. Don't wait till they get this way. And uh, 
Never handle when wet because that just spreads the disease. We all heard that, you know. You don't go out there and start picking fruit or picking diseased leaves off when it's wet because your fingers get the fungus on them and you just transfer it to the good leaves. Uh, you can use baking soda, uh, which is an alkaline, or you can be, use potassium bicarbonate and some dilute, dilute down in some water. Uh, you can rotate out, and then you can do crop rotations. I won't grow cucumbers here next year. Uh, and you can avoid, um, avoid morning shade. When you're doing your layout, which we're going to get to, you always want to make sure if you're going to have trees and you're going to have shade, you always want the trees to the, if you're in the northern hemisphere, you want the trees to the north because the sun's always going to bear to the south, right? So you, it's okay to have tall trees to the north because they're never going to really affect your garden. And east or west, it's better, it's better to have trees on the west. You don't want them on the east because you want that morning sun. Warm, muggy nights, you want that any kind of dew to evaporate really quick. So you want that eastern morning sun on your garden. And if you have to have some shade, have it in the afternoon. Don't have it in the morning. Okay, so that uh, goes with layout. Um, here's my, uh, I had a problem with okra one year. And look at these roots. I mean, these are some sick roots. I, put, I Eventually, what they did is they, I planted them from seed. Now, number one, that's not good. Usually, I can plant, I should transplant okra and grow them in a transplant cell and then transplant them out in the garden for that very reason because infant plants coming up from a seed breaking the ground from a seed are more susceptible to insect damage if you can grow them in a protected environment like a greenhouse or moving them in and out of your house you know taking them out in the day and bringing them in at night when it gets cold do that and grow them up till they're like teenagers then put them out in the ground they have a better chance of resisting any kind of disease attack because they're more mature right it's like anything like human beings you know Infants can't fend for themselves, but teenagers usually stand a pretty good chance. Um, anyways, I, eventually they came up, they grew to about four inches tall, and then about half of them stopped. And they just sat there for like a couple weeks. Well, I knew something was wrong because annuals and okras are, and I, we grow them as annuals, so you, they, you, everything's got to grow quick. You don't want any, when something's growing and then all of a sudden it just stops, the red flag should start going off. There's something happening because it should keep growing. You should see progress every week, you know? When you got two weeks, it was just sitting there at the same size. I knew I had problems, and after two weeks, and you're like, should I go out there, pull them up, or should I wait? Should I go out there, should I wait? And pretty soon, I just gave up and said, I'm going out there and pull them up, I'm gonna see what the problem is. And so, of course, I wasted these, but it was a good thing I did, because I was able to replant, and I had a good crop. But about half of them looked like this, and it was, uh, what is it called, black root rot. <laughs> That's what it looks like. It's black, and it's rotting the roots. Uh, Due to, uh, it was a cool, wet spring, so the conditions were right, the terrain, right? There's not much I could do about it. Uh, the last frost was on uh, April 9th. I direct seeded these uh, April 26th, and it germinated on May 3rd. And see, I'm keeping notes. That's another thing you need to do as a gardener, keep notes when things like this happen. Uh, it was four inches tall on the, the 12th of May, and it was still four inches tall on the 6th of June, or the 3rd of June, sorry. Well, I knew some, that's a long time between the 512 and the 63 to just stay at four inches. So that's when I went out there and said, that's it, I'm pulling them out. Uh, pulled them and I replaced about 20 of the 40 with more transplants. And you know what? My, by, by June 3rd, my cool, wet spring had turned into a warm early summer and I didn't have any more problems with root rot. So, you know, the, the terrain dictated, and what could I do to not have that problem again? I could track my soil temperatures better. You know, a lot of times people just go off a date on the calendar. Well, that's neither here nor there. Every year it could be a different date, you know. You, you know. What you really want to do is go off soil temperature in the spring. 
you know, so you should have a little thermometer in the ground. And when that soil temperature is consistently right around 60 in the early morning, the coldest part of the day, then you can plant things like okra when you get a consistent 60 or more soil temperature. I was probably out there just doing off a date in a calendar and I planted when the temperature was too cold was with the environment for black root rot. So I didn't do my part. It wasn't the plant's fault. It wasn't black root's fault. It was me not being a good farmer. Uh, plant according to the soil temps, not dates. And use, again, use transplants, tr anything that you don't have to grow from a seed. Now, there's some things you have to grow from a seed, like beans, corn, but I've heard people grow corn from transplants. But see, beans are usually, they don't like to be moved, and you've got to plant them from a seed. Radishes grow quick. You don't need to transplant radishes. You can sow them right down in the ground. So, but anything else, if you can grow it as a transplant, grow it as a transplant, because you want to put it out there as a teenager and not have it. Have it. Elliot Coleman said, you know, a plant grown from seed is a gamble, but a transplant put in later on is as close to a sure thing in gardening as you're ever going to get because you don't have to go through that period of it being an infant and everything in the world wanting to get the little infant piece of growth, okay? This is a friend called me over. This is what his tomatoes looked like. They were beautiful one day, and he came out the next day, and they looked like this, and it's called uh, tomato bacteria wilt. Um, what can you do about that? I looked it up. There's really not a lot you can do. It's a soil-borne organism, except have healthier plants. And um, this guy was a conventional farmer, so I don't know what his soil is like. But you, what you do in those cases you, is you want to pull and destroy that plant. Don't let it hang out. Get rid of it. Throw it in the woods. Don't put it in the compost pile. You can solarize your soil. Does everybody know what that means, solarize your soil? You stretch black plastic over it and you pin it down so it doesn't blow away in the wind and you leave it there for about six weeks in the middle of summer. Now you don't usually grow a crop in the summer because you got black plastic over the ground, but that heat will uh, kill you know, about six inches worth of pathogens and weed seeds and everything else. And you'll have to reestablish the good bi microbes in there, but uh, solarization can take care of some of your soil-borne diseases. Uh, and it's basically just using the sun to heat up the soil with black plastic. Uh, use crop rotations. I mean, the same thing that causes bacterial wilt. Now, if I grew tomatoes there every year, I'd have bacterial wilt probably every year. Or I might develop bacterial wilt because I grew the tomatoes there every year, right? But if I rotate out of growing tomatoes in that spot and put something else in like beans or some other plant family that's not affected by it, boom, I don't have the, I don't have the problem anymore, right? Uh, you can have a fallow year where you grow mustard crops. Mustard crops are fumigant crops. They actually fumigate the soil in a natural way and kill a lot of uh, bad funguses and pathogens and bacteria. So you can have a fallow year with just grow a mustard covered crop. Okay. Uh, better variety selection. Maybe this was just a poor, maybe, you know, I was so insistent on heirlooms. Uh, heirlooms are susceptible to a lot of diseases. Hybrids have kind of been, that's one of the beauty of hybrids is they're not susceptible to a lot of diseases. So I like heirlooms. They taste a little better. I think they're more what God intended, you know, because you can save the seed. But I also grow hybrids with my heirlooms because they have some, you know, uh, qualities too. I can't save the seed, but I can get a pretty good crop without having to worry about some of these diseases. Uh, you can flame, uh, uh, trellis gear gets the disease on it. You have to flame sterilize the trellis gear. Uh, roots look fine, but forgot to check the pith. What I can do here, I bet if I cut this open long ways, and right here where it goes from root to stem, right here is called the ponds. Ponds is just a Latin word, means bridge. Right there, usually you're going to get blockages. And I bet you if I cut this, this, this pith right in here should be pearly white. If, if, it's, if, it's, if it's any kind of discoloration, 
you know, that's an indication of a disease and, you know, you got to pull those plants. It's just a neat thing to do and so you can learn a little bit more. That, that pith in there should be pearly white and if it's not, then, then you've got a disease problem. And I should have done that with that one. Yeah. Okay, Bt is an insecticide. We talked about that. Okay, here's another one you need to write down. I've never used this stuff, but some of my farm, uh, organic farmer friends use it, and they like it. Spinosad is another biological insect, uh, you know, bacterial insecticide. Um, uh, surround WP. I don't know what the WP stands for, but it's a physical barrier. That's that kaolin clay, and, and a lot of beetles won't don't want to eat through that. You know, it'll. It, it's like a chalk, it really looks bad on your garden but um, because it's kind of a white chalky thing, but it, it can disrupt the feeding cycle of a lot of the insects. And it's organic. I mean, the clay, clay doesn't really, you can wash that off once you take it in. Serenade is another fungicide uh, that people use, and these are, you know, patented names. They're, but I've heard of people using this stuff. The only one I use routinely is BT. That, I'm not saying I wouldn't ever use, I think surround is probably something I might use. I don't know about the other two. I have to read up on them, but I'm just putting them out there because a lot of my farmer friends do use them. So they're all organic. You can monitor your insect populations with yellow sticky traps. So that way, remember I said, do everything you're going to do, do it early. Well, a lot of times you don't see it because they're small or they only come out in the wee hours of the morning or whatever. But if you put a sticky trap there, it can collect the bugs. And so if that bug is active at night when you're in bed, you come out in the morning, you say, wow, I don't see anything now, but my sticky trap says, they were out here, and I better start doing something about them because I'm seeing the damage, although I'm not seeing the bug. That lets you see the bug, and it lets you know what bug it is, and you can do something about it, okay? So yellow sticky traps in your, in your garden are good to get. Uh, you can get them from garden magazines. I got them over there on the table. That's why I wanted you to put everything back because I want to explain that table to you so you know what you're getting because there's a couple of uh, catalogs over there that have things like this in them. Uh, using plants against pests. Uh, this is my friend Daniel, the guy I mentored under. This is his new place in South Carolina, and he's in a rural area, and he's making a go of it. He's actually small farming and making money. Uh, he rents this land for, you know, uh, they have a bed and breakfast. It used to be an alpaca farm, and he talked them to let, and let him do an organic garden there. But you can see his cash crop is right here. I think that's probably onions. I'm not sure. He's got a little, little rows. And see, see this? You know, here's a row of onions, there's a row of onions, and over there's a row of onions. I think it's onions. It might be garlic. Um, hard to tell. But you can see Daniel likes to grow grass in his walkways. This is just, I think that's kind of, that must be ryegrass. He's growing in his walkways. And, and that keeps his weeds at bay, number one. Now, he doesn't like to mow it. He likes to let the, the, the walkway grass grow. I, I usually mow mine. But he, this creates a physical barrier. Now, if an insect is over here, it might think tross, but going. But it might not. It might. It might be a crawler, and it it won't want to crawl over to this next set of next set of plants because that that tall grass is acting as a physical barrier between those two crops. And that's another way you can use a physical barrier, uh, which is uh, where is that? Uh, this is the way. You, uh, where is my physical barrier? Uh, lure hedge crops. Oh, there. Last one. Hedge crops. They create a barrier. Okay. Uh, because bugs are particular about how they move. You know, some, some won't just fly over the top like you, you might want to do, but they, they, they can't see the other crop or they can't smell it or it blocks the smell, and they'll just stick there and they'll never venture out and lay their eggs anywhere else because they're just in that row. So you've helped yourself out with a plant deterrent. Uh, you can plant tra uh, trap crops, 
which actually lure bad insects, and they'll hopefully feed on that and won't migrate to your, your cash crops. I don't like doing that because I'm always afraid I'll attract all these bad insects, and then they'll migrate to my cash crops. So I don't really like that, but I've heard people do do it. Uh, you can do repellent crops. We've all heard of mums and marigolds as repellent crops because they put out a scent that pests don't like. And you can actually, this is what I like, lure, lure beneficials. Like I said, with buckwheat and Queen Anne's lace, plant that around your garden and attract beneficial insects and let the beneficial insects take care of your bad insects. That's the one I would recommend. And um, I don't know, Farmer, farmerfred.com is a good insight that tells you about how to attract beneficial insects, specific beneficial insects. Now we come to toward, towards the end. We got other other animals. Now Hybrix food repels insects, but actually these are mammals just like us, and they're attracted to Hybrix food, <laughs> like we should be. In fact, you know they they often are more cognizant of that than we are. Um, so how are you going to keep rabbits out? Well, you're going to have to build the best way to keep them out is to build fences, and a lot of these things can tunnel under. So you're going to have to uh, do an L shape. See that L shape there? So when they hit the fence and they try to go down and under, they hit another fence. So you, it takes time to put that in, but usually you only have to put it in once and you don't have a problem. Okay? So an L-shaped fence. And it's a little time and effort, but I think it's worth it because I like to grow my own food. The difference is with a rabbit, you need to do it one foot down in the ground and one foot out. And with a gopher, you need to go two feet down and six inches out. Deer repellents, uh, we've all heard the things like human hair, uh, human urine, uh, egg water, you know, stinky egg water, wash, you spray it on stuff, they hate that. Uh, shrubs, uh, some that repel deer are the holly, the oleander, and the lantana. Blood meal, they say, the deers don't like the smell of that. Hot pepper spray, chicken wire. Here, this is a good one. They lay chicken wire out on the borders of the garden, and the deer don't like walking on it because it feels weird. You know, and it, it'll keep them out. Of course, you're going to have to pull it up and mow the grass because it's probably going to be a nightmare trying to, you know, the grass growing through there. So that's just one idea. Uh, dogs, if you can train a dog not to walk all over your garden and just police the perimeter, but you can train dogs. It's amazing what dogs can do. Um, and they'll keep deer out, but you've got to train them. Uh, you can put a fence in at a 45-degree slant. You know, instead of putting a fence straight up, you, you know, fences are expensive, so you're, not, you're trying to get it out as cheap as possible. So you put it in a 45-degree slant, and, the, uh, and you can make it electric. But the theory is, is you put it in a 45-degree slant, and because deer have eyes on, you know, opposite sides of their heads, they don't have very good depth perception. So the 45-degree slant is just enough, even though they could easily probably jump over it, it's enough of a freak-out for them that they just... You know, they don't want anything to do with it because they can't really tell it. What do I do with this? It's, you know, it's slanted. They can't figure it out. So a, 45 degree, a small 45-degree fence, or uh, you can put up an invisible fence. It's coated with uh, uh, coated wire style, not plastic. Yeah, you don't want it plastic. I don't think plastic fences are that great. But uh, small, you know, uh, wire that's somewhat visible but not too visible and high. You know, you, they say deer can jump 10 feet, so you got to put it up pretty high. Uh, what you also can do is a 3D fence, where you build a, a front fence and, a, and electrify a front fence and, a, and then an outer fence. 
or you could do a tall 8 to 12 foot high fence, which is very expensive. But here's an example of a 3D anti-deer fence. These are uh, three wires and they're all electrified and then you got one wire running out here on the outside and then you, you, know, you electrify it with either a solar uh, generator or a battery or you can plug it into the wall, someone plug it into the wall. And you actually want to bait this wire and get the deer to nose it and touch it so they get shocked. You got to teach them to hate the hate the fence you, they, because if you don't teach them to hate the fence and get, get shocked by it they might figure out ways around it quicker and there's one in real life okay that's an electric uh, 3d deer fence and it's relatively cheap it's a lot cheaper than buying a building a, a 10 foot high fence uh, deer's a creature is a habit uh, train them to dislike the fence by baiting it uh, never leave it uncharged it's it's constant worry, you know, electric fences. You gotta always have them charged because once you leave it uncharged and they make it through once, they'll keep their they learn it and they'll keep going through even if it's electrified next time. Uh, you wanna uh, place the fence, you know, if you have a tree, I've seen guys put up fences right against the tree line, you know, and and the deer's just gonna hang out in the trees and wa wait for his opportunity. You know, you give you, you don't make it easy for him. You wanna have a tree line where deers hide in, and then you want to have like 10 foot of open ground, and then the fence. So they have to get out in the open before they even think about jumping over it. And they don't like to be out in the open. They like to have the cover. So don't put your fence right up against the tree line. You know, move it 10 feet, 20 feet out. Uh, try not to block off any established deer trail. Leave them a way around it. Don't block it off so they don't have a way around it. You know, leave them, leave them a gap to go from here to there, uh, and you'll have less trouble. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.